This week on the Saber.com podcast, a look back at the Virginia football team's second straight road win, plus we preview Duke for homecomings, and things we're looking for in the blue-white scrimmage for basketball. Let's go. The online source for the serious Wahoo fan, thesaber.com. Time again for the Saber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman, your host, joined by uh, editor Chris Wright, associate editor Chris Horn, and thesaber.com has all of what you need for analysis and previews. We'll look ahead to the Duke game, the Duke game coming up uh, this weekend. But first, a look back at the Louisville contest. Well, gentlemen, it pretty much went exactly the way we expected, <laughs> right? We, we called uh, a few of the things that ended up happening, but man, what a comeback down 30 to 13 after giving up 20 unanswered points in the third quarter, UVA storms back and gets by the, the skin of their teeth. It's another missed field goal at the end from Louisville. So 34, 33, the final about as exciting as it gets. And uh, gentlemen, where should we even start with this one? Uh, I got off to a, uh, a fast start, both teams kind of trading touchdowns and field goals in the first quarter. Slowed down considerably in the, in the second quarter. UVA went in with a, a halftime lead by a field goal. Well, then uh, <laughs> the rails kind of came off, but they were able to kind of hold, hold the line and um, do just enough on the defensive end and just enough on the offensive end to come away with that one-point win. So what were your big takeaways from this very important uh, Louisville matchup here in the middle of the season? I think the right place to begin is at the ending. Let's begin at the end. Yeah. Let's begin at the end because, you know, that last minute drive, two fourth down conversions, go ahead, touchdown in the last 30 seconds. Brennan was outstanding on that drive. Coach Mendenhall said that some of those plays were not as called or as designed, meaning that Keaton and Brennan on a couple of those throws, and I'm assuming at least that fourth down throw was a route adjustment based on the coverage. And they both saw it, both ran it correctly, both executed it live. You know what I mean? So it wasn't called to a deal with it. They just did it. So I thought that was pretty neat little nugget he gave us in terms of that last drive. Historically, and I posted this on the message board, this came from the UVA notes. That's only the 26th time UVA won in the last minute with a winning score, meaning the last score of the game was Virginia taking the lead in the last minute. That's only the 12th time it was a touchdown on offense in the entire history of the program. So only the dozen that made it a dozen times that the offense has scored a touchdown in the last minute with the game winning score hadn't happened since 2012 when Jake McGee uh, beat Miami on a catch from uh, Michael Rocco. So it had been almost a decade since it had happened. That's a pretty big deal. Not to mention it was on a road in a place you'd never won down 17 points at the start of the quarter. And, and all of that's part of the ending. Just that last minute drive itself was, was superb. It was really impressive. You know, there, there have been other drives like that that were fun or cool over the years, but it had been a long time since we, we had had one where they score in that last minute. So, yeah, I mean, Brennan has done so many great things this year. We can get more into him later if you want, but to lead a game-winning drive is when you start solidifying your legend status, what people will talk about 20 years from now, because sometimes like stats, when you put up big numbers, that can get kind of muddied in people's minds as years goes on. Game-winning drives don't get muddied in people's minds. When I posted the, the list of the 26, it sparked a huge thread of, oh, I was at that game. Oh, I remember when Mikel Simpson, oh, I remember, <laughs> right? Like people remember those. So that's a, a legend-defining kind of moment for him. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, and especially like, you know, obviously Brennan's put up crazy numbers this year, but having a drive like that and coming through in the clutch like that, I think is only going to really help 
just from a confidence perspective, as far as him, you know, just being consistent and just kind of you know, solidifying his status as a top signal caller, I think in the ACC and, and uh, hopefully the country as uh, you know, the season goes on. But I think again, coming through like that in the clutch, as you mentioned, two fourth downs, doing it without one of your best receivers and Dontavian Wicks facing that kind of pressure and stepping up and uh, coming through in that kind of pressure is definitely something that, you know, I think takes you from one level to, uh, to the next level. So I'm really anxious to see how he builds off of that, obviously heading into Duke and, and for the rest of the, uh, the rest of the season. So, but yeah, once they got down, I mean, getting down 30 to 13 and what a, what a terrible <laughs> third quarter that, well, I mean, Armstrong with two interceptions, it kind of, I don't know if any UVA fan saw, saw the comeback coming. I just, I, I thought the, you know, certainly they were still within reach, but at the same time, everything had to be pretty much perfect to win the game. And sure enough, Virginia scores touchdowns on three of four of the final four drives. Brennan Armstrong, 15 of 22 for over 200 yards and two touchdowns on those drives. Keaton Thompson, six catches, 122 yards, I believe, <laughs> on those final on those final drives, including those those clutch uh, uh, clutch fourth down plays. And this is from a guy playing with a cast on his hand, uh, which is makes it even more remarkable. And just to, just to see his guts, I mean, that guy's really toughing it out and and showing that he's a he's a real gamer and playmaker, kind of in the in the mold of guys who have helped this program become successful, like Bryce Perkins and Hasis Dubois. That that's I think of you know tough playmaking, uh, will do whatever they can to win type players, um, and you know Keaton's kind of another another uh, guy in that mold. I think so. Yeah, the performances from those two guys, but also the defense. I mean, obviously, you know, the defense. I thought. Obviously, they were put in some very bad positions in the third quarter. But overall, I mean, I thought they really stepped up in that second half, especially when they were down 17, you know, forcing three and outs and and uh, really coming through. And then, of course, the play by Darius Bratton tracking down Hassan Hall, which, which would have obviously probably put the game out of reach for Virginia. And then they were able to not just, you know, of course, that's the big play is stopping him. But then Virginia still has to forced them to a field goal, which the defense did. So the Virginia defense coming through when they needed to the most, when they had to, is hopefully another thing that can help give that unit some more confidence moving forward. Still have to limit the big plays, which we saw many against Louisville. But in Louisville, I feel like does that every year to Virginia. They always come up with some big plays, but UVA has been able to respond. So again, hopefully they can continue moving forward and that is the program as a whole. Uh, just the way they were able to finish off that game will help boost them forward a little bit. Well, we'll get back to uh, Armstrong's big day and the the offense in a minute. But yeah, I enjoyed hearing some new names, guys. The announcers talking about, you know, Cohen King had the big hit, forced the fumble and recovered it after he caused the fumble, which is always great. You know, Clary had a big hit in the second quarter. He was kind of in because Blunt was out. So it was one of those pad popping kind of hits that even the announcers were commenting on, on the, the ACC network broadcast. And yeah, just hanging in there and, and bending don't break. You had Anthony Johnson making some plays, uh, a cornerback who transferred from Louisville. So maybe some inside Intel with knowing the, the Cunningham run offense. And it it's so hard to contain a guy like that. Who's so dynamic at the quarterback position, but, and you know, 33, points is not ideal I'm sure that's they wouldn't uh, want to give that up if, if you told them they were going to give up that many points from the beginning but 
man, to really just keep your offense in the game and, and hang in there until the, the very end. So overall, what did you guys think about some of those new names that we're hearing, you know, especially coming off that very, very first play of the game where you give up the, the 92 yard pass player, whatever it was, uh, Cunningham's very first pass. And then after that, that's basically all that, you know, one more field goal is all they got the entire first half. Yeah. Cohen King, eight tackles, Antonio Cleary, seven tackles. Uh, in terms of new guys in the secondary. Now, both of those guys have been working their way into the rotation for a little over a year now, but or longer with Antonio Clary, but he had the knee injury in between that kind of slowed him down. And then really known names, Noah Taylor and Nick Jackson also had seven tackles each. But the defense, I thought, responding to the mistakes, the two interceptions may have been what saved the game. Both of those drives started for Louisville inside of Virginia's 30 after both interceptions. So these were early drive turnovers deep in your own territory. Last year, Brennan had some of those, and Virginia didn't always hold for a field goal. In both cases, they only allowed a field goal after those two interceptions. So they were only down 17. And I know only 17 is ridiculous going into the fourth quarter, but it could have been, what, eight points more than that. It could have been 25. But they they kept eight points off the, the scoreboard on those two drives. I thought that was huge. And then in the fourth quarter, Chris talked about everything going right. Well, the only reason the offense had as much time as they did is because the defense got two three and outs in the fourth quarter. Now, they didn't get it on every drive. And obviously, the big one that Bratton saved that Chris mentioned, they used the three timeouts on that one. So that was not a three and out drive, but it preserved a lot of time and they held. So the two three and outs were huge as well. So basically, if I look at it that way, Six points after the two turnovers, that's a win for the defense, particularly where those turnovers occurred. And then two three and outs, trying to rally from three scores, huge in terms of time on the clock. So big, big moments defense, even though it wasn't perfect. And it, you know, another 50-some yard touchdown run, another over-the-top touchdown pass. They still have to clean those up. And I, Coach Mendenhall is like, you know, it was just a few plays. We can get a few of these cleaned up. Listen, they've been giving up explosive touchdowns repeatedly for a long time. This isn't like they're this close to fixing it. If they were, they would have fixed it by now. But if they can survive on some of the key moments and then hopefully at some point clean up the big plays, that then, then they're onto something where they could be a dominant defense. But to be a, a good enough defense to get wins, you have to have one or the other, either critical stops or take away explosive plays. Critical stops they got, and that helped them get the win. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's encouraging to see guys not named Nick Jackson, Noah Taylor, Joey Blount uh, stepping up and making plays. Cohen King, the I think that is easily is his hardest hit in his career <laughs> since he's gotten a lot of playing time starting last year. That kind of surprised me. I was like, wow, that was that was that was King because <laughs> I haven't seen him pop somebody like that. But to do that, you know, I think that was just in the second quarter. But that was also Louisville. You know, if they complete that pass, that they, they have a uh, have the ball at the Virginia thirty four in scoring opportunity right there. So that was a. That was a big play, but we also see uh, saw on one of those um, three and outs in the second half as UVA was making its comeback. Cunningham goes for nine yards on first down. Nick Jackson makes a play for a no gain on second down, and then you see Jameer Carter, who seems to be uh, making more and more plays the past few weeks, uh, make a big third, make the big third down stop for no gain to force a punt. And then you know some other guy, you know Clary was big. You know obviously with Joey being out, you know Clary had a really tough game against North Carolina, and I think he's been kind of working his way back from that. And I thought he played really well against uh, against Louisville. And you know one thing that I've been looking for is who's going to be you know the guy or guys to step up once 
Joey's gone. Once Nick Grant, Devontae Cross, all the experienced guys, the super seniors, once they're gone next year, who's going to be there to step up? I think maybe this was a, a good game for Clary to, to really uh, kind of get his confidence back that I, I think he lost some from North Carolina. And, and Jeff, you mentioned the, uh, the big hit that he had as well. He's known for his physicality. So he starts to get, to get a few of those in the game situations. I think that's going to help his confidence. You know, another super senior, though, who's kind of stepping into a bigger role, and I think he's played more and more the past two weeks, especially Elliot Brown, another linebacker. He was playing with confidence. You know, I haven't seen him play. He was, you know, fired up, playing with confidence out there. Um, and I haven't really seen that from him in this year as he's adjusting to his new role. So good to see. Obviously, it's got to continue, uh, and they got to build off of this game. But it's good to see those other guys step up and, and have uh, plays and games uh, that, that hopefully they can build off of. Well, and uh, holding Louisville to 3 of 13 on third down was uh, pretty big throughout the course of the game. Um, total yards were pretty even, 522 for Virginia, 503 for Louisville. Penalties, guys, we talked about that last week. Could we cut down on some of those and ended up with seven penalties for 56 yards? Louisville had six penalties for 51. So that's kind of a wash. Just such a weird game of back and forths. But um, what did you guys make of the overall you know, you, you want to play win or lose. You kind of want to play that clean game, right? We we're still sort of looking for that from these guys, Chris, right? Do you track any of that stuff as you're watching? Track it. No, notice it. Yes, for sure. The false start that comes to mind to me was ketons that could have destroyed the game winning drive. And then he came through uh, with the catch to back it up. So that mistake response I thought was yes, maybe as important as anything. Oh, Timmy's had a couple of those this year. Snap infraction, false start, and that usually has something to do with the way they, you know, they hold the ball kind of sitting on its point. And if you kind of tip it or twist it or whatever (laughs) slightly before you snap it and the official sees it, sometimes they'll call it. That's a a center trick to try to pull guys off sides or whatever. So that one I'm kind of like, all right, you're just like that, whatever. You know what I mean? You you tried to get the defense to jump with a sneaky little whatever. You got caught, no big deal. To me, it's the holdings. You know what I mean? The Billy Kemp one downfield. And that was a weird rule quirk that came up on the message board because it was offsetting penalties. Virginia would have been better off if Louisville didn't commit a penalty there. But because it was offsetting, it moved them backwards because it would have been a spot file. So they still would have gotten a first down on Brennan's scramble. So weird rule quirk there that the offsetting penalties hurt them. But those are the ones they got to clean up. The random holds, the random you know, receiver false starts, the random offsides, you know, I think on the touchdown pass to start the game, Virginia was actually offsides too. And it was just declined obviously because it was the big touchdown, but a couple of times, I think it was just lined up in the, in the neutral zone for offsides. I think that happened twice. I think that, that touchdown play. And I think Famui later on a touchdown play was just lined up in the the neutral zone. So those are so easy to fix. Those are the ones you got to clean up. I think, you know, they've cleaned up tackling. It seems like to me, haven't noticed tackling being as much of an issue since the North Carolina game. A little bit against Wake, but it's been trending in the right direction. You know, they could clean up some of the penalties. I, I think people would feel better. And then obviously turnovers. You know, Brennan, it looked to me like the way he reacted on his first one that he thought Rayshon Henry was going to be peeling back toward him. And that would have cut off the angle of the defensive back because he kind of made a hand motion and then him and they caught him and Beck talking on the side. So, yes, that's on him. But at the same time, like if the receiver didn't finish a route, and then the other one's tipped. So those are things you watch on film and go, okay, are these clean upable? And Brennan hasn't had a lot of interceptions this year. So I don't think you worry about it too much, but 
you're, you're striving for a clean game because it gets you out of these holding hands or interlocked arms on the side, watching the other team kick at the end, if you can clean some of it up. <laughs> well, there was a weird play too, guys. Uh, uh, the third drive, I think it was for UVA, Henry, who had already had like a great game up to that point, just the first couple of drives, he was wide open. And then he got kind of twisted around the way Armstrong threw it to him. So he kind of had to land. And, you know, once you're down, you're down in college, of course. But if that pass is sort of leading him, he just walks right into the end zone. And I think uh, UVA got a field goal out of that. But still, you know, if you're trading field goals for touchdowns, that can cost you on the road, too. You talked about uh, Wicks earlier, Chris Horn. It just seemed like another obvious, clear-as-day targeting call that wasn't called. Knox Wicks out of the game. They still called it an unsportsmanlike, which even the, the announcers were like, how could it be that if it's not targeting? And then it ended up being a half the distance penalty, which was big there in the early going. But what do we have to do? Do we have to petition the ACC referees or something to, to get them to actually give us a, one of these targeting calls? It just, it's pretty crazy here these last few weeks. What did you make of that? The uh, yeah, I mean, with yeah, I think Don Tavian's probably working on his uh, petition right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the last two, if I'm if I'm correct, I think so. He ended the Miami game with what was clear and uh, how that was not even reviewed. I have no clue. Right, it was clearly targeting, and I think he he had to, he missed the rest of the game because of that. And then the turns around to start the Louisville game and another targeting and he gets a concussion uh, or what I think, I don't know if they actually said it officially, but it seems to be a concussion, uh, which, you know, obviously cost him the rest of the Louisville game and who knows, potentially Duke. So yeah, I'm not really sure Uh, there, you know, there's um, an NFL referee who's on Twitter and I included this in the Bronco Mendenhall uh, notables from his press conference who has reviewed some of these targeting and he, 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 it was interesting. He mentioned the Miami one and he said that's clear cut and he was blasting the referees for not even reviewing that one. But then he said the Louisville one, in his opinion, was not targeting. I, I disagree because I think even though um, Abdullah, the linebacker, wasn't launching, you know, he didn't like do like a technical launch, I guess, but it looked like he, it, it was definitely like a, passes the eye test for me as far as that it looked like he you know it was a play where he you know Wicks was going down and kind of in a defenseless because he was getting tackled and the guy still leaned into him in the head region so for me I thought that was targeting as well even though this this referee dis, uh, d- disagreed but as you mentioned Jeff for them to call what they call the unnecessary roughness or whatever I don't see how you call that uh, that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, to me, it's either targeting or not. Uh, yes. Uh, and Coach Mendenhall mentioned, you know, he, he was asked about it and he did say he feels like all parties want to get it fixed, want to get on the same page, want to get it fixed. Coaches, players, referees, everybody. But it's, you know, I'm not sure what's taking so long to kind of get everybody on the same page. But uh, it's just, uh, you know, you see other games like watching the Notre Dame Virginia Tech game, Notre Dame tight end got ejected for targeting they didn't actually call targeting initially but it would look like a decently clean block using his shoulder pad and and into the guy's chest and he got he got booted for targeting so i mean it's just so inconsistent and it's definitely a rule you know especially if player safety is the goal that needs to get fixed fast and while it's really bad that a lot of attention is getting um that it's getting a lot of attention for the wrong reasons right now maybe it's a good thing that maybe it'll it'll light a fire into, you know, figuring out something concrete moving forward. You know, Coach Mendenhall mentioned that the process 
you submit it here and then there's a rules committee and then they decide on rules changes and da 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 da. Dave Teal from Richmond Times asked about an idea that's out there, which is to make it more similar to basketball technical fouls, meaning you're not ejected on your first targeting. Would that help referees be more willing to call targeting or to not judge so close to the line on did he launch or did he not launch? Was it an attacking manner? That was something I heard on the Alabama Texas A&M game broadcast. Uh, was he attacking in his manner? It's like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So maybe if you take the immediate ejection out of it and only if you're a repeat offender, do you get ejected? Maybe that, right? So here's how I look at it. This seems really easy to me. And I don't understand why uh, the rules committee can't change it right now, mid-season today. Any contact to the helmet of any kind is a 15-yard penalty, period. It's not targeting. It's not anything. Treat it just like a face mask. If you get your hand in the face mask on purpose or inadvertent, or remember how they used to have the inadvertent one was five and the other was 15, yeah. the intentional one. They just said, hey, listen, anything that gets a hand in the face mask, it's automatic. It's a penalty. Why not any helmet to helmet contact, regardless of intent, is a 15 yard penalty to start from there, then go to the repeat offender thing. If it if you see that the same player has been called for X amount of helmet to helmet hits in a game. Pick the number. I think two is fine, but if you want to do three or whatever, the player is then ejected. This is so simple. Yeah. Like if you're sitting around going, oh, well, we got to go through the process and twiddling your thumbs and the intent, you got to determine intent. And did he actually launch or did he not launch? Take all the judgment out of it. Helmet to helmet contact, 15 yard penalty, no exceptions. Problem solved. Then we can stop talking about it. <laughs> Everyone knows what the stupid rule is instead of going, well, what is targeting? Like we're in philosophy class or some crap. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's simple. Helmet to helmet contact, 15 yard penalty, move on. And there we go. The gavel has been uh, <laughs> whatever you do with gavels. You, you hit the gavel. <laughs> I don't know the t- judge terminology. I'm sorry. I haven't watched enough Judge Judy. Um, so, yeah, guys, let's uh, just review the stats here. We have pretty much talked about uh, Brennan's great day. I mean, 40 of 60, 487 yards, three touchdowns. Did have the two interceptions. Um, huge day for Henry, uh, filling the, you know, picking up the slack for for not having Wicks in there. Nine catches for 179 yards. Keaton Thompson, another just gutty effort. Nine uh, catches for him, 132 yards. Kemp had nine catches for 64 yards. When he got 40 completions, that's a lot of balls being distributed to various guys. And I uh, wanted to make mention of. Uh, Local favorite, uh, Malachi Fields, big catch for him, 51-yard pass play. But UVA, unfortunately, wasn't able to score a touchdown. They were inside the five. So those were some of those uh, red zone woes we talked about last week. And then when you score 34 points and you rack up 487 yards passing, it's hard to really even look at the rushing stats. But technically, it was only 35 yards rushing. That does count. You know, Vernon Armstrong had minus 23 when you account for all the sacks. But offensively, there, there's a couple things here and there to kind of nitpick or clean up, but I mean, it, this is just a fun offensive machine to uh, to watch uh, on a week to week basis. Uh, what do you guys see, Chris Horn? Maybe as the I guess having a third quarter coming out from halftime and just sort of putting up a goose egg is a problem. But then if you know if you come back and score three touchdowns in the fourth, you're yeah, that kind of makes up for some of that. Well, first, Chris, I think the uh, rules committee likes your idea of targeting. They look forward to reviewing it in three years. Um, so um, we look forward to that down the road. So, uh, but anyway, so yeah, I mean, as far as, uh, 
you know, the running game, I mean, it's if, – if you're passing as well as Brennan has shown that he can pass um, at times this year, it, you know, the rushing game is not necessarily needed. But I did like – I have to say, you know, versus Miami, I like that balance because I, I don't like all of it having to fall on uh, Brennan's shoulders. And But, you know, it feels like this is kind of the way – I think the direction that the Virginia offense is going to go is that they are going to put most of it on Brennan's shoulders and the running game is not really going to be – a primary um or even like a uh like a major part of the offense uh certainly so i think it's this is kind of the way it's going to be and i think uh brennan has been great uh for most of it but uh you know he's had some stretches where at least especially coming into the the, or the previous two games coming into the louisville game he he completed less than 60 percent of his passes so obviously he's got to do better than that consistently for virginia virginia is going to rely on that and i think you know the way he was able to come back against louisville i think Again, I think that's going to help his confidence um, moving forward. Uh, Chris mentioned the two interceptions. I think one thing that was that seemed to be good as far as this game was that uh, the previous two games he had an interception where he was staring down the receivers and was picked off, uh, you know, uh, fairly easily. I didn't see necessarily any of those types of plays. I think versus Louisville. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think again, I, I'm really anxious to see how those how the way that Brennan finished the game, how that's going to pay off moving forward. You know, this week against Duke, you know, again, I think, you know, Dontavian Wicks' status could be in question. Maybe that, you know, opens the door for a, a Malachi Fields, like you said, Jeff, to, to make a few more plays. And I really like the way he's looking as far as uh, not just his athletic ability and his size, but, you know, his speed um, and his hands. The way he's catching the ball, he's catching it with his hands and uh, just seems like a really natural type guy natural receiver so excited about his his potential as well and then you know Rayshon Henry as as phenomenal of a game as he had it was a little bit overshadowed by what Keaton and what Billy Kemp were able to do as the game wore on but he had you know his best game by far as a as a Cavalier and I thought all all season long he's looked really good really sharp as far as his route running um, it really is clear that he's taken another step, another level in his receiving. So I think you kind of include him in terms of uh, top receivers. I mean, I think, you know, all of these guys are playing at really high levels and Keaton, you know, keeps improving as, as a receiver as well. But, you know, Rayshon Henry and Billy Kemp, I think, have both taken significant strides forward from last year and, uh, you know, credit to them, but also credit to Coach Higgins, man. Coach H Marcus Higgins is a uh, stock. I think continues to rise just what with the job that he continues to do with the Virginia receivers. So as far as the run game, you know, moving forward, I thought, you know, Chris and I were texting and you mentioned Chris, that it was kind of telling that UVA wasn't really running the ball against the defense that, you know, quite frankly, really wasn't good against the run. The Louisville defense was not good coming in. So I'd like to hear what you, what your thoughts are on that. But again, if, you know, I think Armstrong, uh, it seems like they're willing to put, put the game mostly in his hands and, you know, he's responding pretty well. And hopefully again, with the way he finished it, uh, we'll continue to do well. A couple quick stats for you guys, as far as Louisville goes, Cunningham came in at 10th in all of FBS and total offense. Louisville was leading the ACC in time of possession. Uh, well, then when you look at the final stats, UVA had the ball for a little over 33 minutes. Louisville only had the ball for 26 minutes and 18 seconds. So, did a good job there. Uh, part of that is, you know, a couple of those quick hitter big plays that led to touchdowns for Louisville. But overall, you know, that sort of where I want UVA to get, where they're 
dominating time of possession and we keep our defense off the field as much as we can and just it's okay to dink and dunk down the field if you know as long as you can punch it in there in the, in the red zone i guess is the challenge right chris right to go to kind of answer chris first like they they couldn't run the ball that well against louisville who was a bad run defense the question is more to me about origin like what causes the run game issues is it practice reps is it scheme a lot of people blame it in terms of message board conversations on scheme meaning a lot of slow developing runs so a lot of counters a lot of things that have to come back you know so does that give whatever is it the quarterback not executing well meaning are any none of them seem like fakes at all like the quarterback doesn't care how to fake if you're the linebacker you don't have to respect the quarterback so are they just able to key on it quickly is it blocking assignments like how they design who who blocks who is it running back talent? Is it offensive line talent? Is it all of those things, <laughs> right? Like, it's hard to know. But I do know when you watch it, the pass offense looks a lot better than the run offense. And if I'm trying to win football games, I'm going with the pass offense because it looks a lot better. So to me, yes, it would help balance. I totally understand that. Yes, it would help time of possession potentially, although I think Virginia does pretty well in that stat usually. Yes, it would, quote, unquote, keep defense as honest so they couldn't just come after Brennan. Maybe that helps with some of the sacks. They did give up five sacks. That is one area that I think can improve pretty quickly is Brennan throwing a couple of those away, you know, making a quicker decision or whatever. But also some of these downfield plays are come from him holding it. So you, there's, a, there's a balance there. But in general, I don't think they should run it that much more. Maybe a little. <laughs> but frankly, if he's going to lead the country in passing yards, be number two in the country and passing yards per game, be number four in all of power five football and touchdown passes. I'd rather him pass it. It just looks better than, than the run game looks. I've kind of gotten over that the last couple of weeks. If he's oh, yeah. able to consistently do what he's doing and it wasn't an early season, he's on a hot streak fluke. And it doesn't look like that at this point, we're six games in, this is not hot streak. This is a player consistently getting the job done. And I think he, if you go by pro football focus, I think he's leading the country in what they call big time throws there. It's like a proprietary stat for them, but still they apply it across the board. He's leading the country in that. Why in the world would you take the ball out of his hands? Particularly, you know, the, the stat that's out there, four different receivers already at 400 yards. It's not like he's just throwing it to one dude. Like he's able to get to the ball to different, different people, like keep throwing it. Who cares? Like some of these passes are pop passes. There were four or five of those in this game, mm -hmm. guy in motion, Brennan catches it and just basically hot potato. Like you played in elementary school, he pops it right back to him. Like that's a pass. <laughs> you know like what I mean? So shovel pass. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, like, I'm not that worried about it at this point, the, the passing game looks a lot better than the running game. Keep passing it. And you know, if guys keep, keep stepping up and delivering, I, I don't see any reason not to other than the sacks. And again, there's a balance there in terms of getting those big chunk plays down the field. Yeah, no, there was one play, guys, I think it was in the first half, Keaton Thompson, you know, we're inside the five, and we've talked about some of the red zone stats and, and things, how we compare nationally and things, but it looked like it, it just, the hole swallowed up so fast, like Keaton looked like he was just going to walk right into the end zone, and he, not necessarily being a running back by trade, you know, he runs a lot for <laughs> UVA in this unique offense, but he kind of cut it up, it seems like just looking at, you know, and this was when Woods was healthy too. We just looking at, uh, you know, the broadcasts on television, you can see that some of the, the guys on UVA are just so much bigger. Are we using those mismatches 
as much as you guys would like to see. I don't know. It seems like if he, if Thompson had run around the outside, like who's going to tackle him? <laughs> I mean, he can just, he's basically got the stiff arm down and he can drag three or four guys with him. But when he tries to cut it up in the middle and there's just the blocking just totally fell apart. It seemed like on a few of those runs where we try to just go straight up the middle. I mean, I, I don't think they go straight to mismatches enough in the red zone. So think about that Woods touchdown late when they split him out wide and they sent a corner over there. That sh- to me, I would do that the first red zone or first goal to go every single time. I'd send him out wide and see what the defense is going to do. Are you sending a corner out there? That gives me information for later in the game. And if, if that is what you do, if he gets an inside release, it's a touchdown. If the corner loses just the release, it's a touchdown because you're not getting around Jelani Woods if you're a corner. You saw that on his touchdown. So the touchdown play to win the game was mesh. Receivers crossing the field in the middle. They don't do that enough in the red zone. To me, I would do that more often. So to me, it's not that they don't do it. It's they don't do it all the time or they don't do it immediately or they don't do it whatever. Now, and then the Keaton run, I mean, that's kind of just, it is what it is. The one later, he went in untouched. Right. So I think it may just be, a, did, did one guy get his block? Did Keaton yeah. see the cutback or whatever? I mean, those yeah. some of those running plays just happen. But the mismatch part, I don't think they do it consistently enough you know even billy kemp can you get him moving one way and then moving back out versus sending him across the formation where all the trap and i know why you're doing it like i get it but can we sometimes show that and then just send him right back and just try to get it to him on the move because he's he makes such quick in and outs that you would think you could use that in tight spaces and i don't think they ever really necessarily do that yeah so so yeah i mean there's a little bit of creativity that seems to be lacking but also a little bit of kind of obviousness that seems to be lacking like they're (laughs) overthinking it like let's let's shift two people let's motion keton loop him around brennan and hand it off to him well i mean like just just send him over there and like (laughs) just make it a little easier sounds like a roller coaster (laughs) right exactly it feels like a roller coaster in the red zone that's a good way to put it yeah but it's like yeah i mean but my yeah i would start and uh end with jelani woods in some shape or form as far as split him out wide as you mentioned chris if they have one guy on him i mean you can he's done that um you know gotten the inside inside uh leverage several times this season uh but you could also just throw it up to him like he just run a fade and throw it throw it up to him he is uh, he's proven to me that he's not just a, a good catcher with with somebody on him he's a great catcher what like he it seems like it doesn't bother him at all somebody being on him and uh you know we heard about that coming into the um season from coach Mendenhall and yeah I think he's proven that. I know he's been banged up but again that seems so easy just to put him out there split him out wide and see what they do. Obviously, if they double, then you can uh, maybe take advantage of that somewhere else. But even using him as like you know, lining him up as a receiver, using him in some of those crisscross type routes, he's not an easy guy to get get around if they're you know defensive back trying to run through him. And then uh, you know to Chris's point with like a guy like Kemp with his quickness and speed, um, or even even some of the other receivers, uh, you know just take advantage of that crisscross and there you go touchdown right there so yeah i agree it seems like a lot of some um obvious plays it seems like um that they could do more often i guess uh in, in the red zone uh, to, to kind of firm that up but yeah jelani woods i think has to be a huge part of the equation uh if he's if he's healthy of course so anyway let's move on to duke and uh duke actually has three wins this year 
uh, believe it or not. They're three and three. Although looking at the rest of their schedule, gentlemen, I know you love when I do this. I don't see them winning another game. This is their bowl game. So I hope UVA realizes that this is the game that Duke has to realize, like they're going to come out with all the gusto and, you know, these two teams kind of hate each other anyway, right? So it's a 12.30 kickoff in Charlottesville. We've got the home field advantage, 11-point favorites. Although it looks like TV-wise, we've been relegated to ESPN3 for this one, which whatever that is. So uh, <laughs> not worthy of, of uh, the uh, Uno Dos or the ACC Network on this one, but um, I, I think it's a dangerous game, guys. We're coming off a couple of big wins and – uh, we're we're at home. Maybe we relax a little bit. We think, oh, Duke stinks, but th- this could be a, a problematic game. I think. What what do you guys see? Regional sports networks and ESPN three. So if you're uh, a Comcast person, you're probably celebrating that it's not on the ACC network because you right. do get the regional sports networks usually. But <laughs> okay. yeah, dangerous game, right? It's similar to Carolina, where you've owned the series lately. You like to put out the little tweets and memes that you haven't lost to Carolina since, you haven't lost to Duke since, that sort of thing. And that was the first question for Coach Mendenhall at his weekly thing. Do you have to remind your guys after the Carolina thing that, hey, they just because you beat Duke this week, this week, it has nothing to do with all those other weeks that you won, right? So, yeah, I do think it feels a little bit dangerous, in particular because Duke does have a little bit of a running game and the run defense has been a little bit vulnerable. I do think maybe there's a reason that, that it's vulnerable right but I I think they're making a trade-off that they're willing to make but if Duke does get the running game going does that open up some other possibilities for them the passing game how all that fits together that makes you worry just a little bit I don't know that I think Duke can consistently stop Virginia but we've been generally saying that and that generally has been true other than the Wake Forest game has anybody really slowed Virginia down that much? The answer so far has been no. So to stay out of shootout territory and an 11-point favorite territory, it's going to come down to the defense and maybe you know stopping the run and things like that. Turnovers, obviously, could, could play into it any week. So you know that could always swing things if you have a turnover. I do think one area that could get better and that you know if you're going to be an 11-point favorite and hold serve at home, special teams has not been great in terms of the return units. The return units have been lousy. So that is an area that can be targeted for second half of the season improvement. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think this is um, I mean, UVA has dominated the series, obviously undefeated since uh, Mendenhall got here uh, against Duke, uh, even in the, the the first year. Or so it was Duke was the only ACC win. But yeah, I think that that is a concern that coming off of back to back nail biting, thrilling wins on the road. You know, could there be could UVA be in store for a little bit of a letdown? I, I wouldn't be surprised um, if there is a little bit of one to start the game. I would be surprised. I don't think Duke on, on both sides. I don't think they can really stop Virginia. Uh, so once Virginia, like if Virginia does come out a little bit sluggish, I think Virginia is going to get going. And uh, David Cutcliffe uh, during his Monday press conference, I think somebody asked him about. I guess he's got a banged up secondary. So how's that going to shape up against Brennan Armstrong? And he said, I think, uh, well, every day he'll start off with a good solid prayer, <laughs> uh, like heading into the week. So he's, uh, he, he's probably a little bit concerned. So again, I don't think on the, on the back end, I think Duke, uh, Duke secondary versus Virginia's receiving core, even if Wicks can't go, I think that's a big, big, uh, advantage for Virginia. So I, I, 
assuming Brennan is is playing well, um, I don't think Duke's going to be able to stop Virginia enough. And then I don't think Duke has the weapons. Talk about what happened with North Carolina, but you know Josh Downs for UNC is an outstanding wide receiver with a lot of speed. I don't think Duke has a lot of the speed threats that have given Virginia a lot of trouble. Um, now Durant, the running back, uh, certainly is a very, very good player. And, uh, and Holmberg, uh, the quarterback is a solid steady. I think he's completing over 70% of his passes. He doesn't, he's throwing four picks, but I think generally he seems to be you know pretty accurate and especially on those short throws. So I think Duke's going to try to look to, as you've mentioned, Jeff, as far as keep the foot, hold on to the football, keep running, uh, in, in the offense off the field. And, uh, and and do some ball control and yeah if they get going then then you never know I think Duke is is better than three and three their three and three record which includes of course a loss to Charlotte to start the season so I think they are capable if Virginia and Virginia is not good enough to really sleep on anybody I don't think I think so I think Duke is definitely capable of putting together a game where they make it close and it's a, another nail biter which you know, Virginia's four and two, but they could easily be two and four uh, just from the last two weeks. So it, it's going to be interesting to see how UVA comes out. But again, I think ultimately UVA has too many weapons on offense. And I think uh, Duke does not have those game, those big play type of players uh, across the board like UVA's had trouble with uh, versus, you know, North Carolina, Louisville, those types of teams. In terms of keep, keeping the players locked in. You hit, you hit on the key there. Virginia's not good enough to, <laughs> to do that. And Mendenhall is essentially saying that. He said several times in comments lately that this is where we are, this is who we are as of right now. That's a pretty frank way of saying, hey, yeah, we're not dominant. The thing I expect from Duke, other than ball control on offense, is defensively they're going to try to play bend, don't break. You almost have to think. That, that's what they, they attempt. And zone defense, dropping a lot of people. Wake had success with that. Louisville did not, right? So if Brendan has made a step forward in how he reads zones and receivers have made a step forward in how they read zones, and that's why that Mendenhall comment I mentioned earlier jumped out to me, is that they adjusted on the fly to what they were seeing in terms of the coverages. I don't know if that will work as well as it has uh, for, for previous opponents, but we'll see. Duke is bottom third of the country in pass defense. They've got up 13 passing touchdowns. You would think Virginia will be able to figure out a way to get, get some passing points on the board, but we'll see. Well, I know you guys love the, uh, the transitive properties too. Like you said, uh, Chris Horn, Charlotte beat Duke to start the year 31-28. Charlotte ends up losing to Illinois later in the year. And of course UVA beat Illinois. So I hate analyzing this Duke matchup. Come on, man. We should be killing these guys. But then I get really scared because I'm looking at their offense. Duke has really only had one bad offensive game. They scored 28 first game, beat uh, North Carolina AT&T their second game, 45-17. They beat Northwestern 30-23, although Northwestern's having a down year this year. They might not win very many games in the Big Ten. Uh, they beat Kansas. Kansas is awful, 52-33. Uh, they did put, they held North Carolina to 38 points, losing 38 to seven. That was their one bad offensive uh, performance. And then this past week, 31 27, they gave Georgia Tech all they wanted, although Duke was at home there. So, yeah, it's, it's a three and three team. And, you know, good pedigree with the coach. We always worry about that. The, the streaks, I'm always leery of these, you know, Bronco hasn't lost to them. I mean, that's just the law of averages says that. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> Duke is going to beat us eventually here. So let's not make it uh, this week. And then, I mean, anything else you guys want to analyze or should we just move on to the, uh, the blue and white scrimmage and talk some uh, hoops? Well, the law of averages is in the same bucket as the transitive property, <laughs> right? Meaning it has no like real like <laughs> value. <laughs> but, not to Vegas. <laughs> true. Just last thing for me, Duke is 19th in the country in rushing offense. But since we talked so much about Virginia's running game, here are the other, here are some other teams in the top 20. Georgia Southern, I don't think their record's very good. Syracuse, I don't think their record's very good. These are some of the teams in the top 20 in rushing offense. It does not necessarily correlate to wins and losses. Duke fits that at three and three. So if Virginia can slow it down just a little bit, you would think they would have the advantage. Very good. Moving along to uh, hoops. We'll do that next. And that's coming up here on the Saber.com podcast. It's your number one online source as a Virginia fan. The Saber.com. Second segment of the Saber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman joined by Chris Wright and Chris Horn. Each week we dissect all things who's sports and big week for hoops fans. Good to see Coach Tony Bennett and this new squad in action, the blue-white scrimmage coming up. Now the time has changed or the day has changed and stuff, so let's go over that first and then talk about formatics and uh, what you guys are looking forward to uh, seeing with this new crop of guys. Uh, Chris Wright, this was supposed to be Saturday, but then they moved it to Sunday, right? When the Duke game got placed at 1230 by TV, the complications kind of arose within trying to make a lot of different people's wants and needs met. So basically, if the football game's at 1230, you almost have to have a scrimmage at like 9 a.m. if you're going to do it in the morning in order to get fans out and to the stadium in time. You don't want to take away from your football team. So 9 a.m. is really early for anyone traveling, particularly if any recruits for basketball are traveling. So, you know, that doesn't really meet program needs. Flip it to the other end. If you do after 1230, meaning five o'clock, by the time it's done, you've got people traveling back late and you're in the dinner hour. So that's a popular recruiting tool, right? Taking them to dinner and getting to know them and all that sort of thing. So you're getting into that and all of it kind of gets complicated when it's 1230. If the game had been like Georgia Tech, 730 the following week, I think they would have left it on Saturday. But as is, they moved it to Sunday afternoon. You can do a doubleheader men's and women's scrimmage and then jump over to women's soccer who's still doing really well they play across the street at three i think so yeah so you can pair it up still if you want to on homecomings weekend format generally is two or three periods where the score gets reset and sometimes they trade players with within that right so you might get say reese and kihei playing together in a period because that's virginia fans favorite thing and i will harp on this for the entire season because fans are going to learn that last year does not equal this year and them playing together this year is going to look better than any of the fans think there's me on the record saying it and we've got it all right but in terms of format then you may see Reese or Kihei switch over from let's say they're both on white you may see one of them then switch over to blue for later periods right so it's not a pure blue versus white play 40 minutes whoever wins wins it's not that it'll be probably my guess would be three periods of 10 to 15 minutes and then with players maybe trading sides they split the coaching staffs yeah that's the general format and then you know a chance to see some new guys so that'll be the most interesting part of it usually is the guys you haven't seen yet. Yeah, Chris Horn, what are you looking forward to? Yeah, exactly what Chris said. As far as the guys we haven't seen, a lot of buzz about Igor Milicic uh, coming Igor. in. Um, yes. Yep. So I know you're looking forward to seeing him, Jeff. So, uh, but you know, 
the the grad transfer or the uh, the transfers coming in. Armand Franklin, Jaden Gardner. Interested to see how they look integrating into a new system and things like that. And kind of you know I don't know if you can get a great sense of how the chemistry of the team is looking, but maybe a, a sense of that. I was listening to some of the uh, ACC tip off and uh, with Caden Shedrick was there and he mentioned how the the team he feels is is, is in a really good spot as far as chemistry wise. They were integrating a, a lot of new pieces, uh, but so far uh, you know through how many ever weeks of practice that the chemistry seems to be going pretty well. Caden Shedrick is another kind of guy who's been in the program. He's not a new guy, but he's a guy that's going to be uh, needed, I think, to uh, take on a bigger role this year. And he, his his physique looks bigger and more impressive this year. So I'm anxious to see how he's going to look. But again, you know, Fra- Armand Franklin, how's he? Uh, you know, what exact skill set is he bringing to the team? Jaden Gardner how those guys are going to look. And then again, you know, uh, you know, the young guys like Tane Murray, Igor Milicic, uh, but, and, and then, you know, guys who have been here for a while, Cody Statman, how's he going to be looking at, you know, I think he's another guy who could fall into the category of, you know, a guy that they may need to really step up for, for them to have the success that they want to have. So for me, it's always interesting to see, seeing the new guys. And then, and with this being such a kind of new team, it kind of has a real, such a new feel to it. Just excited to see uh, some of these new parts and how they how they may look. We'll get into this more in a future episode, but you won't see this in a blue-white scrimmage or it won't jump out to you. But Cody Statman is really good within the defensive system, and I think that means he's going to play a fair amount. We saw that prior to whatever his injury health issues were last year. He was playing a decent clip the year before. I know it's different personnel, different roster, all of that. But regardless of whatever you see blue-white scrimmage from Cody Statman or regardless of what you think based on the past, or the, I have a feeling he's going to play a decent chunk. So what I'm watching is the other guys, the Tane Murrays, Milicic, McCorkle, guys like that, some of the younger guys, do they look even somewhat close against vanilla offense defensively? If they're nowhere close, I think it answers a bunch of questions. Most people won't be watching that. That's what I'll be watching. Are they even close positioning close out footwork, coming around screens. How do they, do they get skinny and get through or do they just run right into screens? These are the kind of things I'll be watching that no one else will be watching. They'll be watching like shooting strokes and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> to me, the, the key to who plays comes down to, to that. And this is our first chance to see that. Doesn't mean that answers our questions for February, but it may answer your questions for Navy and some of those early games. With, with the ACC tip-off, Chris, do you think it was any – is there any significance to Shedrick and Beekman being the guys that they chose to go there uh, over, you know, maybe like a Kia Clark? Any significance at all, or is that just kind of just uh, as far as to maybe Bennett kind of sending a message to them that, hey, we're going to need you guys to be pseudo leaders almost this year in addition to some of those upper-class guys? I think he generally doesn't put young guys in spots like that unless he's using it as a tool of some sort. So I think in the case of Beekman and Shedrick, it's a tool, right? Like you're going to be more in the spotlight you have to know how to handle it. So I think it's that end. Kihei was supposed to go. He was the one originally announced. I do not know what happened. I have no information. If I had to take a, a blind guess on it, maybe travel. This was fall break weekend. If Kihei went out West or something, I don't know. I have no idea where Kihei was. <laughs> so, but if he left town and I know some of the players did leave town, did he have trouble getting back? And that led to the Caden Shedrick change. But regardless when you choose those two guys, yeah, I mean, I think you're saying to them, you're, you're going to be in the spotlight more. You need to learn how to handle it. Step one is answering media questions, dealing with long days that, you know, that sort of thing come with the territory. So what you're saying is basically the perfect game, the perfect blue-white scrimmage from Tony Bennett's perspective would be a 0-0 tie. 
You think he would he would just love that, wouldn't he? <laughs> Actually, I don't think he would. But <laughs> He's too much of a shooter, right? In his heart. I was going to say the man, the man can shoot still like today. Forget yes. when he was in the NBA and hanging out with Del Curry and they're lighting it up. But yeah, I don't think he would like zero zero. I, I think he gets a little bit of a bad rap in that sense. Zero zero would indicate competitiveness, though. And that part he would relish. So whether that's 68 to 68 or 82 to 82 or zero to zero, he probably doesn't prefer either extreme, but both extremes do usually equal some sort of competitiveness. How did you get to, to such a close 82, 82 or zero, zero versus offense versus defense? It's more the stuff that goes into that. That's where he really gets excited, right? I mean, I don't care if that's ping pong or something else. It's the competitiveness that really drives him. So zero zero might get him excited in that sense, but I I think as a coach you'd be like freaked out if your team couldn't score. <laughs> so no matter how much you love defense, well, and uh, defensively there are obviously some questions. I'm the transfers, like you said. I mean these guys coming from other conferences into the ACC, which I think is pretty well regarded. You know, obviously we're biased, but I mean some great great basketball in this conference year in and year out. Legendary programs you're going up against. I look forward to those guys taking their game up a notch just based on that excitement of, you know, the competition level that they know they'll be seeing as the year continues. Yeah. And Franklin comes in with that defensive pedigree. So I'm really excited to see how he's going to, uh, what he's going to do in the pack line, but also with his offensive ability, I think uh, he's going to be needed to take a, uh, you know, he, he made a big, uh, a good jump from his freshman year at Indiana to his sophomore year, averaging double digits last year. Now is his real chance to take it to another level in a new conference in the ACC. So he's going to be a big factor this year on both ends of the court. And Gardner, uh, he, he's a, he's, he seems like yeah, he's, I think he's going to help bring some of uh, a bulldog mentality, I think, to this, uh, this Virginia team. And, you know, I think d- how he fits in on, on the defense is, is my biggest question, but yeah, I think he, he seems like he's, he plays with a lot of uh, uh, emotion and in a positive way. So I'm, I'm anxious to see what he's going to, I think he's going to bring some really good things to the team. Not, you know, obviously he's, he's got the experience of uh, putting up a lot of points of, of rebounding, things like that at ECU, but I, I like also his personality and what he's going to bring uh, that kind of, uh, I do think he's going to bring some of that energy and excitement to the team that I think last year may have been missing a little bit with uh, when you saw with, you know, I think they had good leadership, but kind of guys who are not necessarily rah-rah exciting as far as that type of personality. But I think uh, Gardner certainly kind of fits that mold, I think. So one o'clock for the women's hoops squad and then two o'clock on Sunday as the blue white scrimmage. Pepsi Blue White scrimmage takes place at uh, JPJ and then right across the street afterwards, three o'clock for the women's soccer team, number two in the country, taking on Notre Dame. And it's a Sabre Rewards game or something like that. Chris Wright, what that's uh, has something to do with basketball seating, right? For the students. It's not all it has to do with, but that's the main motivator for students, I think. Um, if I understand it correctly, a Sabre Rewards game, if you go to it, Maybe you get extra points, which then gets you higher up the entry time list, which gets you closer to the court and the JPJ. So particularly after last year with no one in the building, I'm sure students are itching to get back in there. So just a good opportunity. And frankly, the women's soccer team is really stinking good. So whether yeah. it's a reports points or not, just you're already there. You're already parked. It's not dinner time. You've already eaten lunch. Why not? <laughs> exactly. Well, if you guys could just get the Sabre in there somehow and, tag on to it. I mean, you guys be 
adding into the rewards program for the saver.com. Now we're talking. Yeah. Post your picture of yourself at the game on Instagram and tag us and I'll reward you with a a subscription or something. (laughs) There we go. Well, uh, thanks guys. Yeah. We look forward to that matchup uh, on Sunday. Of course, the big uh, football game is this Saturday in Charlottesville as well. 1230 kickoff there with UBA taking on Duke and for our final uh, short segment, we'll talk a little bit of music. There's a new John Prine tribute album that's not mine that just came out. We'll tell you all about the all-stars involved there next year on the Saber.com podcast. The Front Porch is a nonprofit roots music organization, and we uh, connect everyone through music. I like the way that the Front Porch encourages people to, to sort of engage with their community and sort of enlarge the community. Everybody is included, and that's really what the word community is about, you know, making sure that everybody has their chance to have a good time and and participate and add something. Back for our final segment here on the Sabre.com podcast this week, Jeff Sweatman joined by Chris Wright and Chris Horn. And sometimes we talk a little bit of music as uh, that can fire up the message boards from time to time at the Sabre.com. John Prine, a beloved songwriter. We lost him to COVID uh, last spring, but this year it turns out it's the 50 year anniversary of his uh, debut album, that self-titled instant classic debut back in September, that was celebrated. It's the 40th anniversary this year of his record label, Oh Boy Records, where his two sons and his wife are still running that operation. He was one of the first artists to kind of, you know, reclaim his own music and, and put it out his own way and run his own label and things like that. So that's been going strong for 40 years. He would have been 75 this past Sunday and we celebrated here locally with a little listening party uh, in town where I finally got to play uh, for folks the 22 songs that are on the compilation I put together uh, of some great local artists. We're calling ours All the Best from Six Feet Away, and that'll be coming out hopefully by year's end. We're sort of at the mercy of the vinyl pressing plants who have been really backed up and uh, you know supply chain issues in pretty much every industry these days, but uh, we'll give you more details just go to the uh the gofundme uh page for that one as we're raising some money for local artists in need with that project but uh some big names a part of a different tribute to john prine you may have heard of folks like brandy carlisle and jason isbull and well emmy lou harris bonnie rate they're all on this uh dirty hearts and broken windows uh broken hearts and dirty windows i should say volume two uh, they've apparently got volume three and four in the works for next year. So no lack of love for John Prine and his songwriting talents. So we look forward to uh, more volumes in that series. The first volume came out about 10 years ago and was excellent uh, as we talked about that in uh, past episodes. So just wanted to let everybody know that's finally out and it's got some really, uh, really great renditions. Sturgill Simpson's on it, Tyler Childers. And you can kind of see that almost this new, uh, vanguard of of singers and songwriters who have taken up his you know independent spirit and a little bit of his style and and flair and humor in some cases so a lot of great folks out there in the americana world these days and um john prine even ended up winning at the americana awards recently a posthumous award for the final song he ever wrote i remember everything so good to see all the the john prine love here the last few weeks guys and um yeah just wanted to mention in for that yeah, go ahead. 
have a question for you. Yeah. Is how lucky uh, that song, is it on your tribute album or is it on the one you're talking about? I don't think it's on either one. No. Why do you uh, mention that one? Because <laughs> I just think the lyrics apply for Homecoming's Weekend and what just happened <laughs> these last two weeks. Last so here, two here's weeks, the lyric. right. Here's the lyric. Today, I walked down the street. I used to wander. There's Homecoming's Weekend. I shook my head and made myself a bet. There was all these things that I don't think I remember. There's Homecoming's Weekends again. <laughs> did, what do you remember? Depending on how long ago did you graduate? But here's, here's the part from the last two weeks. Hey, how lucky can one man get after surviving those last two kicks uh, the last yes. two weeks? I was just curious since it seemed to tie in so perfectly as they waited with bated breath to see if a kicker who had already kicked a game winner against Appalachian State, in Miami's case, missed. And then Louisville's kicker had never missed inside the 50 and missed twice inside the 50 Saturday. It's a one-point game. And <laughs> either one of those kicks goes, you lose. So, yeah, it's okay to be lucky sometimes. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not that's criticizing right. Virginia's performance. I'm just saying, hey, how lucky can one man get? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go listen to that one now, the original. <laughs> yeah, so let's all go listen to that, maybe keep the luck going, right? Virginia, with the possibility with back-to-back -back home games, if they win both, they would be bowl eligible. Uh, that would be the fifth straight year if you count last year when they opted out that they made it to bowl eligibility. Interestingly enough, they have never lost, or not never, they haven't lost more than one home game in a single season since 2017. So 2018, 19, 20, they've had one or fewer home losses. They've already had one this year. You know, can they hold serve at home these two games? If so, that puts them in really good position. And at that point, I don't think you say, how lucky can you get? You say, hey, you're really good at home. If you keep doing that, good things ahead for Virginia football. And in terms of the podcast, subscribe, share, do all those things. And we'll see what happens Saturday afternoon. Go Hoos.